Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. This is the seventh episode in a series where I converse with classicists, and now Assyriologists, about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special guest episode, I am joined by Dr. Moody Al-Rashid, postdoc at Wolfson College, University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Her current research focuses on the use of metaphor in descriptions of mental distress in cuneiform medical texts, and she teaches classes on the Akkadian language and the history of science and medicine in ancient Mesopotamia. Dr. Al-Rashid is also an entertaining and informative follow on Twitter, and we have bonded over our mutual love for dogs. As we have discussed at length in the podcast, there is so much Mesopotamian influence on ancient Greek culture, and vice versa, so I thought Dr. Al-Rashid would be the perfect person to bring on to give the other perspective, specifically in terms of Mesopotamian medicine. And who knows, perhaps I can conjole her to come back onto the show in the future and talk about Mesopotamian astronomy. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Moody Al-Rashid. So I'm joined today with Dr. Moody Al-Rashid. We're going to talk about ancient Babylonian medicine. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So what is the earliest evidence that we have for Babylonian or Mesopotamian uh, medicine in general? And just to give context, in my episode, we talked about Hippocratic medicine in the ancient Greek world. And we talked about some, you know, like Homeric Bronze Age type of like medics. And that was not until, you know, the first millennium BC. So obviously I'm imagining that the Babylonian evidence that we have is a little bit older than that, right? Yes, quite a bit. Well, the Mesopotamian (laughs) evidence is quite a bit older, but the Babylonian evidence is just sort of mid to late second millennium onward. The earliest written medical texts from Mesopotamia, so from the area that's covered by sort of Iraq and Syria today, the land between two rivers, is a bit older than the medical texts in the language that I work with, which is Akkadian, sometimes called Babylonian, which is a dialect of Akkadian. And those come from around 2100 BC. The absolute earliest one is 2400 BC, but it's a sort of single text by itself, and it's from Ebla. And it's a list of herbs or herbs, everyone corrects my pronunciation of this word in different countries, Um, (laughs) for various ailments. So there's one that's called snake plant. Uh, I can't remember what it's for, but there's another that's an herb for a liver problem with your liver that may lead to jaundice. So that might have been the symptom that was treated, the visible symptoms of that. And then fast forward a couple hundred years in 2100 to 2000 BC, we have a handful of medical texts that are very similar. They give treatments rather than long sort of symptom descriptions. And these are all in Sumerian, the ones from 2100 to 2000 BC. And then fast forward even more to about the middle to late second millennium. And that's when you start to have the material that we would call Babylonian medicine making an appearance, or or at least that's what we have that survives. So quite early. So with the Mesopotamians or Babylonians, Akkadians, did they feel like their uh, medical knowledge came from the spiritual realm? You know, like how the ancient Greeks, they have like Asclepius, the healer, and Apollo, and that factored in. Were there any sort of medical deities that they felt like they got their knowledge from in the ancient Mesopotamian tradition? Yeah. um, I mean, sort of all scholarly knowledge was the domain of a certain sort of restricted number of gods. Um, Ea, I believe, was the one that's responsible for a lot of the medical material that we have. He's sort of the the author, the ultimate author. Um, Marduk is another. So there is an ultimate kind of divine source of knowledge. But at the same time, in ancient Mesopotamia in general, and I use this kind of as a blanket term to refer to Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, and Assyrian civilizations, there was a a kind of overlap, let's say, between the natural and supernatural realms in which it kind of made sense for knowledge to come from those places and for medical experiences to be explained with respect to supernatural forces. I mean, we call them supernatural, but to an average Mesopotamian, they would have been part of the natural world, if that makes sense. That distinction mm-hmm. isn't really there just generally for all aspects of life, whether it's wars being caused to you know, a snake bite. <laughs> Everything <laughs> has some sort of root in these powers that exist alongside the stuff that you can see 
So would you call them healers or doctors or what would be the word and what would they be translated as in the in the text? And are they like uh, from the priestly class or is this a separate entirely class that would have practiced medicine? So that's actually a really a difficult to answer question, even for Assyriologists. Um, I would call them sort of doctors or physicians, but there are three people involved in the kind of medical process. And those terms are, the translation of them is still something that gets debated and articles get written about. I'll say them in sort of Akkadian first. Uh, again, we're talking about the sort of later period texts that I work on. And then I'll give what we how we understand them, let's say, whether, whether the translations are good or not. Um, the the first would be the Asu, A-S-U with a little hat on it, uh, the circumflex, um, <laughs> the chapeau, as I call it to my students. And that's traditionally in kind of Assyriological scholarship translated as the physician. And the reason for that is that the Asu is typically responsible for the medical materials involved in the healing process. So the herbs, the plants, the minerals, the different kinds of stones you need, and the administration of the kind of physical medical treatment. So like bandages and mixing stuff with beer for people to drink so that they feel better. And then alongside that, or possibly in competition with that, uh, again, something we don't fully understand, is the ashipu, which is traditionally translated as exorcist, which I think is somewhat problematic, but we can stick with that for now because there isn't really a better option in the secondary sources. And that professional was, was responsible for the supernatural cause. So again, that wouldn't have had the same distinction that we make today. So in all kind of medical experiences, there are two sort of layers of cause. One is the immediate cause, let's say a snake bite. And then the other is the thing you might have done to cause the god to get angry with you that would cause the snake to bite you, that sort of thing. So the Ashipu is responsible with identifying the supernatural being behind all the other natural causes and addressing that in the form of incantations or other rituals that are prescribed alongside the, you know, the sort of medical stuff. So again, these are all distinctions that we make that I don't think would have been as, uh, well, I know it wouldn't have been as black and white in the ancient world. And then finally, you have a baru, the seer. Um, that's a little bit more straightforward to translate, the diviner, who can be called in to read signs that are unrelated to the medical experience. So instead of interpreting symptoms on the body, he is looking at birds flying overhead or stuff going on in the sky to try to figure out if the person's going to get better or not. So that's part of another kind of the culture of divination that goes along with a lot of decision making in general and interpretation of just human experiences. So it's a pretty complex system they had. So these men, and I'm guessing they were men, were there women doctors in ancient Mesopotamia as well that we know of? I'm just guessing because it's the ancient world. Yeah, there were, yeah. There were? Okay. Then I was completely wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, you're not completely wrong because the majority of the texts that we have were written by men and involve kind of male medical professionals. I haven't actually read the primary sources, but there were female physicians, at least in Mari, that would be the old Babylonian period, around 2000 to 1800 BC, so a little bit earlier than the text that I work on. And then we also have evidence of midwives. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they would have been involved in sort of female reproductive health, childbirth, miscarriage, that sort of thing, just as they are today. So the various different types of medical professionals that you described earlier before I erroneously called them all men, <laughs> where would they have been found? Would they have been located near, say, like the kings in the capital cities? Or were these people that were just found at in all major towns and villages and cities throughout the ancient Mesopotamian world? So that's another good question that's difficult to answer. I mean, we know, for example, for the Neo-Assyrian period, so we're talking sort of 900 to 600 BC, roughly, that physicians formed part of the royal court and kings could very easily access them to get medical help for whatever it was that they were experiencing. It's kind of less clear for other periods exactly how that medical encounter or where that medical encounter took place. There is um, a medical diagnostic series that in the ancient world was called Sa-Gig, and we just call it the Diagnostic Handbook, <laughs> a little bit easier. <laughs> and the first kind of chapter of that, every single entry begins with, 
when the Ashipu is on his way to the sick man's house. So, you know, evidence like that may suggest that doctors made house calls rather than there being kind of a centralized place that they worked from. I think Herodotus actually wrote in his histories that when he went to Babylon, the way that the medical encounter took place was that a sick person would just sort of park themselves on a sidewalk, you know, being ill and displaying a variety of symptoms, hoping that someone who walked by, who recognized those symptoms and may have experienced them before, could then diagnose the sick person and tell them what to do. So that's definitely not what happened. <laughs> um, Herodotus is wrong. <laughs> shock, <laughs> gasp. Um, so, so we do know that there was a kind of a highly developed way of, of doing things. Um, it just hasn't been fully reconstructed yet for all periods. And again, just as the nature of written sources, um, for medicine anyway, a lot of them are part of a kind of scholarly milieu. So they you know, omit the experiences of the average person. And you don't really have things like case studies written down. You have letters occasionally explaining medical problems, but again, those are usually in a royal context. So a whole host of experiences are missing from our evidence, but there is still so, so much material to work from, even if it doesn't give a complete picture. I mean, that's kind of how it is on the the Greek side of things, too. We have a lot of evidence, but a lot of the stuff is just abnormal descriptions. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, like if you had an everyday ailment and that you had needed to get taken care of, and especially for like the women's side of things, like when they're describing things wrong with women, they were like something completely wrong that was out of the ordinary. Yeah, you're not going to get that sort of detail about the everyday sort of problems that someone might come across. Following up with what I asked earlier, was there any like medical schools or where people got trained or was it apprenticeships? Like how did one become a medical professional at that time in that part of the world? I don't really know how to answer that. I can sort of answer that up to a point, if that makes sense. But in terms of like actual specialization, I think that's a little harder to reconstruct, or at least I haven't come across the kind of sources that would tell you about that. But typically in sort of ancient Babylonia and Assyria, kind of by extension, even though we have less evidence for it, a person would kind of learn the scribal arts before they did anything else. And I'm using scribal arts, I mean, as a kind of really general, just how to write and read, basically. So you'd have a kind of general education and just like we have today, you know, up to a certain age, and then you kind of specialize from there. And I don't actually know how that specialization took place. It doesn't mean that we just, we all don't know it. It just means that I don't quite know how that happened. You know, similarly for astronomers, we have a little bit of a picture from certain periods. So for example, in the later periods, we know that a lot of astronomical knowledge or knowledge about astronomy was passed down within families. So you have private homes with documents detailing astronomical observations that are, you know, sort of seven generations of a particular family writing these things down and passing that knowledge on. So your dad was an exorcist, so you're now going to be an exorcist, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, that sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Such a great word, isn't it? (laughs) So was there specific ways in which they treated patients? Like, were they diagnostic base, prognostic base? Did they use a type of like overarching principle when they were coming to their medical practice? Like, for example, Hippocratic medicine, they had theories on illnesses with like the humors and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. With the Mesopotamian sources, it's difficult to kind of distill principles out of them because the way that they recorded information was more kind of instance-based, something that's been used against the scientificness of these texts, which I think is absurd. But we do have, you know, thousands of therapeutic texts that are all kind of phrased in, in similar ways and that most of them will begin with a kind of diagnostic introduction, which could be really, really long, or it could be one line, like if a man is depressed. And the word used is man in the general medical text, not obviously in the gynecological text. And that's followed by a description of the therapy. So sometimes this takes a form of instructions, like you take X, Y, and Z plants You mix them together in oil, you leave it overnight, you know, that's sort of you, you, you. Again, these are the instructions to the 
medical professional, presumably not to the patient trying to work out how to do all this stuff by himself or herself. And then you, um, you will be healed or, you know, sometimes it'll add again, this, this kind of supernatural element getting addressed. So, and then you recite an incantation over it and then he will be healed or she will be healed depending on the type of medical text. So there is a, you know, a set kind of way of describing these therapies that suggest to us, you know, going back to the medical professionals, the Asu, Ashipu, and occasionally the Baru, the the physician, the exorcist, and occasionally the seer or diviner kind of work together in ways to address illness that we can somewhat reconstruct from very detailed therapy texts. And, and some of these texts, you know, initially in early Assyriology, the argument was, well, they never use them because they don't change and it doesn't really make sense for medicine. Medicine is supposed to adapt to new knowledge, but they did change now that we have much more um, written evidence that has been translated. And some of these describe themselves as tested. <laughs> so we know that they were tested. Um, the, the Akkadian word is lataku, well, the verb is lataku, and various forms of that word get used at the end of therapy text to show, well, actually, yeah, we did try this treatment and it works, or we did and it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so we're just not going to write this down anymore. We'll just let it you know, sit in this library and, and we'll revise it with a different tablet. So we have somewhat of an idea of the way that treatments were carried out. And we have so, so many therapeutic texts that give us details about different illnesses that were treated and how the prognosis took place. So there's the therapeutic texts, which are one large body of fluctuating, changing, uh, tested text. And then you have the diagnostic series that I talked about, the SAGIG or the Diagnostic Handbook, which doesn't change. So that's a little bit confusing. We're not 100% sure what that was used for. I think I've encountered one excerpt from it in a physician's letter, but you know how it got referred to and what exactly, what part of the medical process it was, you know, came into contact with is not 100% clear to us. So on a slight tangent, how much medical like text, like how much do we have? Letters, evidence. You mentioned the was it the diagnostic handbook? Is that our main evidence for a lot of these diagnoses? How big is that? Like how much evidence do we have? So a lot, actually. Yeah. I mean, when I tell people I study medicine in ancient Assyrian Babylonia, they're always like, oh, so you have like one or two texts? And I'm like, mm, you know, we have like 10,000, tens of thousands <laughs> of, of texts that are both medical and non-medical from which you can, you know, glean information about medical traditions. So they wrote everything down. They wrote so <laughs> much down. Yeah. And again, you know, a distinction has to be made between the kind of scholarly materials. So the actual medical texts that record symptoms, diagnoses, uh, treatments, etc. And then the kind of everyday documents. So the letters in which people are describing their symptoms or talking about physicians. So there's a wonderful group of letters that discuss a physician called Rabba Shah Marduk, who's a middle Babylonian physician that was kind of transferred to the Hittite court and kind of tracing his career over the course of, I think, 11 years that he spent in the Hittite empire. And then you also have administrative texts that record, you know, purchases of Materia Medica and how much that might have costed. And then what can that tell us about how much it would have costed to employ an Asu or Ashipu to help you? You know, so there's direct evidence in that we have descriptions of, of medical problems, and then there's indirect evidence. And the indirect evidence can take the form of also legal texts. So for example, the famous law code of Hammurabi or law collection of Hammurabi, the first complete law collection that we have from history, has a series of entries dealing with when an Asu messes up a surgery <laughs> and how much he'd have to pay and what the punishment is if he's sort of operating on someone's temple, for example, and he accidentally blinds them, you know, what's the procedure for that and how much is he supposed to charge? Some medical malpractice. Exactly. Very <laughs> early medical malpractice. And it's kind of an eye for an eye, like another articulation of that. So there's tons and tons of evidence and there's a lot of ways to interpret it. And and then there's also in, in the later periods, the type of medical text that you get changes completely and the way that medical knowledge is organized changes completely. So then we also have to keep in mind that it does change. Mesopotamian history is several thousand years. So there are some changes that happen, especially after the development of the Zodiac from the 5th century BC onward. 
I guess to rephrase my last question that I had and meant to say more, were they more diagnostic based where they would like find and examine specific symptoms and like attack those symptoms actively? Or was their medicine more like passive treatments and try to predict a future course of a disease? Because, you know, that was like dueling theories that happened in the early archaic Greek period of medicine, which I've read somewhere that like later Babylonian medicine is very similar to early Greek medicine. So I thought if there was different schools of thought on how to attack or how to like treat patients, and that's kind of what I got to it. And I just worded it terribly. <laughs> okay, I see. I see. Well, actually, you know, I'm going to pull open just a random page of the diagnostic handbook and you can kind of. Well, I mean, if it's called the Diagnostic Handbook, I guess that kind of gives it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we call it, but they called it sick veins or symptoms. Sick veins, like blood veins? Yeah. Well, sagig means sick veins or sinews. So that's Sumerian, but the Akkadian translation of that is sakiku, which just means symptoms. It is a book of symptoms, essentially. But the way that the prognoses happen in it is extremely, I mean, to us, bizarre. So let me just find, let's go to the epilepsy tablet. That's pretty interesting. There we go. I'm just going to read like two entries from this. Okay. So if a confusional state comes over him and spittle flows from his mouth, it is antashubba, which is the word for epilepsy in um, Akkadian. If his confusional state comes over him and he bends his hands and his feet towards his neck, antashubba. If a confusional state comes over him, depression afflicts him and spittle flows from his mouth. A vow made by his father afflicts him. He will die. So you see, it's kind of organized in a way that you have like a kind of core symptom that then gets modified and that generates either a diagnosis or a prognosis. So what we don't quite understand is how the prognosis is generated from that, if that makes sense. Like why will he die if it's a vow made by his father? Whereas, you know, in another instance of very similar symptoms, he will live. There's actually one that I can, I'm not going to even try to look for it now, but there's one description of fevers in which you start with a fever and then it's modified by a couple of variables. The diagnosis is the same for all of these. It's a four entries and the diagnosis is hand of Ishtar in all of them, which may also tell you something about the cause. But the prognosis is also unchanged. It's he will die, you know, no matter what the symptom description is. So it's really black and white. <laughs> Sometimes he will die is modified by he will, you know, be sick for three days and then die. Or he will live is modified by he will be sick for seven days and he will live, that sort of thing. So it's unclear to us what principle operated to kind of decide the prognoses listed in the diagnostic handbook, and whether or not those were relied upon. Some have suggested maybe it's kind of a measurement tool where if a person is suffering from a series of symptoms, it's more like an omen reading rather than a symptom reading. And that's why it's such a black and white series of prognoses um, that don't necessarily tally with the symptoms being described. But it's really difficult to kind of penetrate what's going on there. And what, the, again, we don't really know what that text would have been 100% used for. So that makes it even more confusing. But then that's very different from the therapeutic texts I described, which are a lot more variable and they do change over time. Whereas this Sagig is written down sometime in the middle of Babylonian period. So around, let's say 1100 BC and copied in the exact same form all the way up. I think the latest manuscripts are from 300 BC and there's not that much deviation throughout Assyria and Babylonia, what the texts look like. And it's long, it's 40 tablets long and it was copied in the exact same form for that long. Job security, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, but I mean, in the later periods, you know, medicine does change and trying to find kind of lines of transmission between Mesopotamian and Greek and some of the similarities is a fairly new field, which is very exciting to be part of. Well, kind of off topic, but it kind of made me think the Mesopotamian doctors, any of them, did they perform like any sort of dissections? I know the Greeks didn't, but the Egyptians did, obviously. Did they do that in ancient Mesopotamia? Do they write about what they found when working on dissecting the human body? So their overall knowledge of anatomy and physiology? Because, you know, the Greeks who didn't dissect, they had weird theories like Plato and Aristotle where things were in the body because they obviously couldn't look at it. What was that like in ancient Mesopotamia, I guess I should say? How was their knowledge of anatomy and physiology? 
It, so definitely not as good as the Egyptians because they didn't have the same kind of, as you said, kind of mummification and embalming practices where they removed parts of the body and stuck them in jars and that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think they did anything like that on dead bodies. And I imagine it was for similar reasons as you described for the Greeks. So they did it on live bodies? We do have evidence of surgery and we have evidence of that in the form of, you know, references to Brown's knives and lancets being used in the law collection that I mentioned in Hammurabi's Laws, but also in hymns to Gula, for example. So she's described as brandishing, I mean, brandishing is a bit too dramatic, but holding <laughs> a, a scalpel <laughs> and, a, <laughs> and a bandage. It's like going into war, but I guess medicine in a way is pretty dramatic in its own way. So there are kind of hints of that. And we also have archaeological evidence. We have some sort of medical tools. I can't remember where they were found that are basically like scalpels that could have been used for that purpose as well. So there are hints that surgery was performed. But again, because it's not case by we don't have sort of case studies that wouldn't really fit with what got written down, at least not on clay. There were other ways of writing things down that didn't survive that we know were used, like especially in the first millennium BC, writing boards and papyrus that would have been used to write Aramaic, probably, because cuneiform doesn't really, it's like really hard to write. It's much easier to press <laughs> into clay. So, so yeah, we do have some evidence that surgery was performed, but nothing like to the extent of what the Egyptians did on their dead and certainly not on their dead. We, we also, I mean, the, the suggestion has been made that they, by analogy to animals, they sort of knew where things were and what things were. Because we do have names for internal organs like, you know, lungs and kidneys and the liver, and that those make their way into medical descriptions quite often. And even the brain, and there, there's even some evidence that even if they didn't necessarily locate the seat of cognition and feeling in the brain, they did recognize the head injuries led to problems with cognition. And there's a kind of a lexical list of body parts that starts with the skull where there's a word that roughly translates to soft skull. And the argument is, so they, they knew there was a brain in there. So there was knowledge of internal anatomy. It wasn't sort of completely guesswork, but it was probably by analogy and maybe also from surgery on live people. So speaking of brandishing a weapon, did they have specific <laughs> like medics who assisted the army that performed, you know, like on battlefield surgeries or saving someone's life? Or was that not like a just a normal warrior would have done that sort of thing that's interesting question i never thought of that i'm sort of racking my brain i know administrative texts like neo-syrian administrative texts that detail people in the army that are on campaign will usually just list the military people and the administrative people. So uh, how many people are on horses? How many people are on foot? How many people are there to cook? That sort of thing. I don't know if there are references to medics. That's a really, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to see if, if anyone's written on that. It's a good question. But I mean, if, if battles would have been ugly in the ancient world. I mean, just like they would have been just before modern medicine and antibiotics. And so I imagine it would have been a terrible job. Was there any sort of like crazy theories that they might have had like with Plato and his wandering womb because they couldn't dissect and know what was going on inside of women's body so they had to guess? No, thankfully. The gynecological texts are kind of boring actually. Um, at most they use metaphors to understand or to describe, maybe not to understand, but to describe what's going on. Um, but Nothing so exciting as a wandering uterus. Um, <laughs> the, the word for midwife, which I'm now blanking on, and I can't believe I'm blanking on it, is that it translates literally to the one who knows the inside. So even if they weren't 100% sure of how everything fit together, I think they had a, at least a basic understanding of the fact that there wasn't you know, an internal organ that both produced blood and produced babies. And their treatments of problems to do with that were pretty straightforward and didn't really, as far as I know, go into any kind of like emotional descriptions. So I had a student that wanted to write on kind of like something like PMS, if there were any descriptions of depression or anxiety that were tallied with descriptions of periods. And I was like, I just don't think that that exists. <laughs> you know, it's a very kind of socialized disease. I don't, I think there are several societies in which PMS today isn't really recognized as an actual kind of legitimate medical experience in those different medical traditions. So it is very social, you know, context driven. 
But yeah, the gynecological texts are very kind of dry, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> You're talking about depression, anxiety. Do the ancient Mesopotamian diagnostic texts talk specifically about depression, anxiety much? Was there anything kind of like, you know, the rage now is to like look back with Sophocles' Ajax as PTSD and look at it through that lens. Is that discussed a lot in those texts? Not just PTSD, but depression, anxiety, mental distress, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the danger or the thing that we as uh, kind of modern scholars need to be careful of is not projecting back our modern conceptions of those problems onto the past. So rather than saying something like this person might have had PTSD, which is a really specific disease concept that is very much informed by the social contact that is produced, both the people that suffer from it and the understanding of the experiences that go along with it. So rather than having something that specific that is tied to a social context, you can say something about the symptoms that might form part of a disease like PTSD or major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. So using the symptoms as your kind of common denominator of human experience and trying to see if those might have been described. And they certainly are. So we have, there are a couple of different words, nouns and verbs used to describe a depressed state, let's just call it that to be as general as possible. And some of them, you know, involve metaphor, like being darkened, like gloomy, dark countenance, that sort of thing. Not in terms of skin color, but just again, metaphorically understood. It's interestingly the same word used to describe eclipses. And then you also have several words that may kind of be understood as an anxious state, one of them, for example, that I'm working on is the literal translation is breaking of the heart. So let's just call it heartbreak. And the word for heart used is libu, which actually has a pretty wide semantic range. It can mean stomach, it can mean insides, it can mean heart, it can mean mind, understood as the, the thing that you think with rather than the brain. So you think with their stomach? <laughs> That's absolutely right. And they felt, you know, with their stomach or even their liver, sometimes the liver gets angry and stuff like that. When I was in my early 20s, I thought with my liver, so. Yeah, I think a lot of us did. <laughs> um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's. It, I love finding kind of even sort of uh, surface similarities like that in the, the language we use to describe these kinds of things. So yeah, so they definitely did describe those kinds of problems, usually incorporated in a larger kind of symptomatology. So alongside other things like sleeplessness and stomach aches and paralysis in terms of sort of weak limbs, that sort of thing. So there was a kind of mixing of physical and mental that in a way makes sense if you don't, you know, if you don't follow the kind of dualism that we have in Western biomedicine, that's I think changing between kind of brain and body, which I mean, the brain is part of the body. So there are all sorts of physical symptoms that you get when you feel emotional distress. So those definitely get described, but again, just not equivalent to our modern disease concepts that we use to understand those symptoms and to group them together in specific ways. Is there a whole lot of evidence that they're aware of specific mental diseases, not just, you know, like depressed states, but like, for example, use Herodotus. Herodotus describes several stories of like mad kings going crazy. Uh, did they have this idea of like major psychological disturbances and were they able to, how did they describe them or explain them? Were they, you know, something given by the gods? Like how did they explain those sort of things or did they not explain them? Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they, there were definitely descriptions of what we might kind of understand as psychotic episodes or maybe that were part of larger disorders. Um, one of the phrases to describe this is shenit temi, which the, the first word is changing and the second is temu, which is mind. So a kind of alteration of mental state. So it's kind of understood as a sudden change, like a snap or something like that. Uh, that could also be chronic, you know, it doesn't have to just be something that comes on suddenly. Um, it can be something that someone continually suffers from. But there are also, you know, in, outside of the medical corpus, um, you do have descriptions of enemies, especially in Neo-Assyrian kind of annals and royal, royal inscriptions, going mad in sort of, I don't know if it's fear or distress at losing. They always lose, you know, all, the Neo-Assyrian kings always win. So, uh, <laughs> and, the, and the word for that is machutish, from machu, which means frenzy or frenzied. So there is language for describing not just emotional distress, but, you know, sort of like actual, you know, problems with the way you're thinking or behavior that is so extreme that it 
gets described as kind of a madness. But again, sort of medical traditions are constrained by the kind of tools of observation at their disposal, as well as their just general understanding of the human body and its place in the world. So the way those would have been described would have relied on external cues rather than saying something's wrong with a person's brain, the way we would with our understanding of neurology, that is also one of those things that's changing so quickly. How did they believe that they could cure these specific instances or did they not think that they could cure them? Like, oh, you know, earlier you said, oh, they're just going to die. Yeah. I mean, that. so that's the funny thing with that diagnostic series that we're kind of not sure how it operated is that it is either he will live or he will die. And it is always he outside of the gynecological sections. But there is this whole, you know, again, this therapeutic corpus that is geared toward making sure that didn't happen. And when it came to addressing emotional or mental symptoms, so one of the things I reviewed in my thesis that I'm turning into a book is that the reason mental states were so often grouped with physical ones is because it's so much easier to treat like a stomach ache or paralysis than sadness. You know, while I haven't encountered a treatment for the terms I relayed earlier that describe madness, there are efforts to treat emotional issues. And anxiety seems to be something that does crop up quite a lot. I mean, I think that just like any of us today get anxious about anything from paying bills to family issues to just a general, like, I have no no idea why I'm anxious. I'm just anxious today. You know, I think that that was a problem back then too. And they did try to address it usually with herbs and again, complemented by magical, you know, that's oversimplification, but magical practices like rituals and incantations addressing the ultimate cause of, you know, would have been perceived as the ultimate cause, like a particular deity or a ghost. So it's like herbs and incantations, not just like go buy a puppy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although they did have puppies, um, but it was um, based on their the repertoire of available remedies in general, which were the medical materials and complementing each other, the magical stuff as well. So not just with mental diseases that they may have noticed, but physical diseases as well. Did they have anything remotely, like the Greeks had like the Asclepia, where they went to these temples and they thought that if they stayed there and did these certain practices, that the gods would heal them? Was that something they believed in as well? So they definitely did have temples for healing goddesses. And I actually forgot to mention who these goddesses are. The the kind of main one that there are a couple in these kind of earlier periods. So let's say to oversimplify it, it's 2000 to 1000 BC, um, because I don't actually remember the dates during which these syncretizations happen. So there are a couple different ones floating around in Babylonia, and they all eventually kind of get syncretized or lumped together into one deity, Gula, G-U-L-A, who is becomes then the healing goddess that is addressed in medical incantations occasionally, as well as having hymns to her specifically. And she's the one that brandishes the scalpel and the bandage in her hymns, as well as in visual depictions of her. So like cylinder seals will show her carrying a scalpel and you mentioned puppies her attribute animal was a dog Um, yeah isn't that lovely she's often depicted i mean she's usually depicted with a dog sitting at her feet or in front slightly in front of her we don't know why that is but there there was a very famous temple to her i think it's in nippur where there was also a temple to the dog so whether or not people actually went to these places to experience the kind of healing that would have happened in an Asclepian temple, I'm not 100% sure, but we do know that there were temples to healing goddesses and that they were kind of addressed in incantations just generally, even if they weren't seen as responsible for the, the treatment was being sought for. But yeah, I love Gula and her dog, my favorites. <laughs> For the listeners, I only mentioned the dog for two reasons, because every time I'm sad, I just play with my dog and you have lots of dogs. So So you said the time frame we're we're looking at here is roughly, what, 2000 to 1000 BC for the most part? That's where most of the evidence is? So like 2400 is absolutely earliest, but let's say around 2000 BC to, um, you know, the end of cuneiform culture, but the kind of Babylonian medical the way we started with, they really only start around, let's say 1400 BC, and they go on until the end again of cuneiform culture. So like 100 AD, basically, but they change quite a lot after the development of the Zodiac and just different ways of thinking about natural phenomena seem to crop up in scholarly texts more generally. 
Do you want to talk about the development of the Zodiac and how that influenced it? And for listeners that may not know what the Zodiac is. Yeah, sure. I, I love talking about the Zodiac. Other um, than it's, it tells them their horoscope. Yeah, yeah, which they did do in the ancient world too. That starts in Babylonia, birth astrology. So around 500 BC, astronomers started to use a different way of kind of dividing the sky up in order to describe what was going on in the different parts of it. So the development of the Zodiac is essentially a development of a way of organizing information. Instead of just looking at the night sky and describing annual or recurring phenomena like the movement of planets or appearance of certain like eclipses or regularly occurring phenomena, instead of just describing those with respect to a series of, I think it was like 28 constellations that they were using, they divided the sky up into 12 equal parts of 30 degrees. And this was actually interestingly like a reflection of another thing that they used to schematize, which was time. Um, The Babylonian calendar, the kind of schematic calendar that was used for administrative purposes, just to make calculations and planning easier was kind of based loosely on the lunar calendar, which divided the year into 12 months of 30 days. So 12 you know, sections of the sky divided into 30 degrees is kind of like the spatial reflection of the calendar of 12 months divided into 30 days. So there's like a longer history to the development of the Zodiac that we could talk about for like several hours um, that I will <laughs> spare you the details of. But what the Zodiac did was provide a new way of organizing information above that could then also be tallied to things going on below. So, you know, in my field in in medicine, we start to see in the last half of the first millennium BC, something I think it can be called astrological medicine, or I don't know how to say this word, another word I've never actually said out loud before. (laughs) Melothesia, M-E-L-O-T-H-E-S-I-A, for anyone who wants to look it up and tell me how to actually pronounce it, which is essentially the use of the zodiac to interpret symptoms or to make decisions about treatment, whether it's the timing of treatment or the kind of certain parts of the zodiac being connected to certain parts of the body to help explain those symptoms and then make a kind of treatment plan accordingly. And then the zodiac, of course, was famously used eventually for things like birth astrology as well. So another thing that it helped organize was people's, you know, lives and Predictions could be made about a person's life based on the positioning of astronomical phenomena on the night they were born. And these texts were always written retrospectively, as as in they were written after, like a couple days or weeks after the person was born. And the information used to make these texts, to, to compose the birth astrology texts, came from another series of astronomical texts called Astronomical Diaries, which were just very detailed observations of what was going on in the sky, a tradition that starts around 750 BC and continues really up to the end of cuneiform culture. So the zodiac is sort of like a really revolution in thought in a way. And that's one of the ways that medicine gets kind of reorganized alongside existing ways of understanding therapy in general. But also, I think, perhaps as a precursor to the humors, This is a fairly new argument that I'm less familiar with, but I will say it anyway because it's interesting. Later medical texts, and there's one I'm thinking of in particular, organize diseases as coming out of certain parts of the body. And there are four parts of the body that they come out of. One of them, interestingly, is the libu, the heart, a word that can be translated as heart, but it includes things like epilepsy and uh, hand of God, which we don't quite understand. So there was a new way, again, of organizing types of diseases into kind of parts of the body that they originated from that may perhaps be a precursor to the, it's four humors, right? In Greek medicine. There's four of them. It's a blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. So yeah, so the Zodiac, it really kind of changed the way a lot of scholarship was done in ancient Mesopotamia. And I think that later period is the most interesting to me and I am less familiar with it and I'd like to be more more familiar with it. I teach a lot about the astronomy in that period, but less about medicine, weirdly. Do you teach Egyptian medicine as well? Um, is it their similarities? So embarrassingly, I don't know anything about Egyptian medicine. Like, I, it's one of those things where I'm, anytime someone asks me, I'm like, I really should know. And, you know, I'm like, to-do list, add, like, read at least a little bit about it. But I just never get around to it. But it's so bad. I really need to, you know, 
at some point, and I'm never going to, but I, I should uh, read a little bit more about that. All I know about Egyptian medicine is everything I learned on Assassin's Creed Origins. Which is probably <laughs> accurate. <laughs> I'm guessing they asked an Egyptologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they worked with a lot of, they go you on their discovery tours. Also, I know what Herodotus says, which may not be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's to, to be taken with many grains of salt. I know there was some influence on the Greek stuff, especially in their um, the pharmaceutical drugs that they tended to use in early Greek medicine. They got a lot of that off of uh, what the Egyptians were using. Maybe what the Babylonians and Mesopotamians were using. I don't know. But I specifically read Egyptians. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I don't I, I think that uh, there's been recent research done on like actual lines of transmission between Babylonian and Greek medicine, which I mean, how can there not have been literally the last kind of 500 years of cuneiform culture? We had the Achaemenids and then the Greeks and then the Parthians. So there's just no way the Greeks didn't take some of that knowledge back. It's just a question of finding the actual written sources for it. But we do have like, there's a papyrus from Oxyrhynchus that gives the sorrow, I think it's the sorrow cycle in Babylonian and translates it into Greek. So we do have some like bits and pieces of evidence of transmission from you know, Babylonian astronomy into Greek astronomy. And then, you know, Greek astronomers refer to the Orichaeans, I think they're called the Orichaeans, and to specific ones like Kidinu, who, you know, when he died, there was a big hubbub written about it. And how, you know, no one was more learned in astronomy than the Orichaeans and the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. So, you know, there's good evidence that there was, you know, shared learning. I just don't think there's been enough done on the medical side of it yet, but it's being done. There's so many new projects, even though there are like nine of us that work on it. We're still, we're doing a lot for, for, for such a small group of people who thankfully work really well together. So you know everybody in your field that covers Mesopotamian medicine then? The other eight of you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And they're all lovely. They're, they're you know, it's such a joy to, to collaborate. And everyone's so helpful, you know, like it's just so different from the previous generation where like you can just email someone and they'll literally like send you their unpublished work, trusting that you're not going to, you know, which, you know, no, no one would. But I've, I've used other people's work in my teaching. I always credit them. But everyone's just so generous with their materials. It's, really, it's good to hear. It helps that there are so few of us working on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, if there was like 90, that probably won't be the case with everybody. <laughs> exactly. There would be some egos or, you know, difficult people involved. So I only asked if you know some Egyptian stuff just because then we got to talking about Herodotus. The one thing I do remember, like right off the top of my head, Herodotus talking about Egyptian doctors, he said, and I'm not sure if he's correct, but he said that they were specialists. So there was eye doctors, there were head doctors, there were dentists. Was there specialists in ancient Mesopotamian medicine? When you get into, say, like the first millennium BC, did you start seeing, you know, doctors who only focused on the eyes as well? Like, I think this was the trend later in the Persian Empire, I believe. There were specialists, if I remember correctly, when Darius broke his foot, he had to call in a specific foot doctor from like the Near East somewhere. So I didn't know if that was just like, you know, bad way of phrasing it or if they're actually like specialists later or if that was something that was from the beginning. That's interesting. So terminologically, I don't think we have specialists, but in the way that therapeutic texts and series, so groups of texts are organized, there are many of them that are organized as eye diseases. So these are like six tablets that deal with eye diseases, or these are five tablets that deal with, you know, urinary tract diseases, or these are a corpus of gynecological texts. So there is kind of specialism in the way that texts were organized, let's say. You wouldn't really have like a gynecological text and a text for headaches uh, and a therapy for headaches in one tablet, for example. There was a kind of understanding of separating subspecialties out. Unless they thought headaches were caused by the uterus. Yes, exactly. Uh. If it wandered up <laughs> the head. <laughs> so there was this kind of idea of organizing stuff, you know, organizing information about medical problems according to the body part or the, you know, general type of medicine, which may have translated you know, in practice to medical professionals, but that doesn't survive as far as I know in the textual references to them. So you don't have sort of for a foot doctor referenced um, as far as I know. I could, there's could, I mean, I don't know everything. So there could be a, a reference to that somewhere. 
So there's no Dr. Shoals in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> and that's a terrible joke. No, but it would be hilarious if we found if we found someone whose name involved Shoal, who was a doctor. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> the way you make it sound, if there's still a lot of medical texts that you guys are still working on. Is my reading that right? Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot to be translated. A lot of it has been, so there are kind of several layers of publication in Assyriology. The kind of first step is to go from a physical 3D tablet in a museum or somewhere that you are reading to a drawing of that tablet, which actually involves a lot of interpretation because it's not always clear what the sign that's impressed is. And then going from that to a transliteration, which a lot of that has been done. And then going from that to a translation. So there are kind of four general steps. And because of the nature of cuneiform as a multivalent writing system, in other words, each sign can have multiple values. So you can really only decide based on context. It's not as easy to kind of, it's not like an alphabet where you, you know, one, one option of what the letter could stand for. So it's not a straightforward process. And a lot of these texts have been translated, but not a lot of them have been analyzed. So there is a lot of work left to do. And then that's just the, you know, the scholarly medical text. There's still, you know, tons of letters and other sort of everyday documents from ancient Mesopotamia that we don't even know where they are. You know, there's literally hundreds of thousands of texts, which could contain more information that we just don't know is there yet. So what you're saying is that I shouldn't have tried to be a classicist. I should have tried to be an Assyriologist because there's work to do. <laughs> 100% of what I'm saying. And everyone <laughs> should feel free to take that advice. We need more Assyriologists. And it's such a cool field. So if anyone wants to come join us, feel free. And it's never too late to learn cuneiform. I started when I was like in my late 20s. So like learning the language or you like did a career switch or both? Yeah, both. I mean, I went to, I did my undergrad in philosophy because I wanted to go to law school and it was one of the pre-law tracks at Columbia or like the recommended pre-law tracks. And then I worked at a law firm for a couple of years and then I discovered cuneiform and literally like changed my entire life <laughs> on the basis of like three days of cuneiform. I was, I think, 26 when that happened. So it's never too late. And that's still, I'd say, pretty young. We have, we had one student that was in his 40s and another in her 60s. So it's never too late to learn cuneiform. That should be my slogan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So thank you for coming on. If the listeners want to find you on social media or if you have a website or anything, or if you've written anything upcoming, where can they find you at? So the best place to find me is my Twitter, which is my first name. So M-O-U-D-H-Y. That's it. That's my handle. I am currently working on a book, so I will keep people posted on that if it actually happens. It's so hard to write a book. You said that was your thesis? Yeah, yeah. But I'm turning it into a popular book in addition to a series of academic articles because I feel like it would be, it's just interesting for people to know how old these problems are. You mentioned it earlier, but just as a refresher for the listeners, what's the book about? <laughs> Yeah, the book is about emotional distress and mental symptoms, essentially. Um, so how people understood uh, emotional and mental distress in ancient Mesopotamia through literature and medicine. Mm, that sounds interesting. Okay, well, I'll keep everyone posted. So hopefully that'll be TBA publication date. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining me. I really had fun. Your dogs are adorable. <laughs> thank you. Um, so yours. <laughs> bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. Mm.